Hi everyone, welcome to Outgrow's Marketer of the Month. I'm your host, Dr. Saksham Sharda. I'm the creative director at outgrow.co. And for this month, we are going to interview Dan Martel, who's the founder at SAS Academy. Thanks for joining us, Dan. I'm excited. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. So we're going to start with a rapid fire round just to break the ice. You get three passes. In case you don't want to answer the question, you can just say pass. But try to keep your answers to one word or one sentence only. Okay? Yep. All right. So the first question, how long does it take you to get ready in the mornings? Uh, Three minutes. Okay. Most embarrassing moment of your life? Um... I spilled, well, one word. I spilled food on myself before I went on stage and I had it all over my shirt. Okay, one word or one sentence. Okay, that was good. Uh, How many hours of sleep can you survive on? Four. Okay, fill in the blank. An upcoming marketing trend is blank. TikTok. Okay, the city in which the best kiss of your life happened. Toronto. Okay, Pick one, Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey. They're both boners. I can't. I'm not. <laughs> Brilliant answer. The first movie that comes to your mind when I say the word ambition. Gladiator. <laughs> All right. Why did you last cry? Oh, sorry. When did you last cry? Watching Driven to Succeed, the F1 Netflix, when it was called Man on Fire, the episode. Okay. The biggest mistake of your career? Selling my company Spheric Technologies. Okay. How do you relax? Snowboarding. Okay. How many cups of coffee do you drink per day? A hell of a lot. Um, (laughs) Too many. Like a lot. Okay. (laughs) Oh, wait. (laughs) A habit of yours that you really hate. I rarely hate. Really, really hate. Oh, a habit of yours that you... Is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. The most valuable skill you've learned in life? How to connect with people. Mm-hmm. And finally, the last question, your favorite Netflix show? Favorite Netflix show... It's not on Netflix, but it is, uh, okay, uh, Hero Dreams of Sushi, if you made me pick a movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I've seen that one. Yeah. All right. Well, that was the end of the rapid fire round. You didn't use any passes, so you scored 10 and 10, but you yeah. did take a little long to answer the last question, so maybe 9 and 10. <laughs> 9.5. I'm competitive. All right. <laughs> You're good at bargaining. <laughs> All right, nine point five it is. All right, so the bigger questions. The first one is: You're a five-time founder. Tell us a little bit about your experience being a five-time founder. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a really tough environment. I ended up in and out of jail uh, as a teenager. Rehab saved my life at seventeen. Learned how to code um, by discovering this book on java programming in rehab of all places <laughs> and then had two failed technology companies uh right out of the gate and lucky that i just started young at 17 and then at 24 i thought to myself i should probably learn about this business world and i started reading books 
and got a mentor, a coach, a guy named Bob. He was an E-Myth certified coach. And I think the theme in my life is uh, 1% better. So, you know, as a software developer, as an engineering mind kind of guy, I'm a very much a process person. I think that speaks to me. Um, designing the game to never have to not be played. I never want to stop playing this game uh, of, mm. of growth. Um, realizing that we all die, that none of this is permanent. So, you know, it's kind of like Gandhi said, learn like you live forever and live like you'll die tomorrow. <laughs> but that's like, I mean, those are some big ideas encompassing the last five years. But, you know, I've also, I just feel incredibly lucky from coming a place where I was in a hole and, and depressed and, you know, addicted to drugs to now being a multimillionaire, you know, running multiple companies. I've invested in 40 plus companies. Four of them are billion dollar companies. I run the largest training coaching company in the world. I buy software companies. So I have a high speed ventures, which is my own capital, kind of like a family office. I don't know. I just, I'm, and, and I think I'm a really good marketer. So it's kind of fun. But these are these are just areas of my life I've decided to invest in. And, and the through line out of all of it is I'm willing to work, put in the time to get to learn a new level of, of skills and mindsets and beliefs that are going to help me add as much value as I can to the people I care about the most. That's interesting. There's a lot to unpack there. I, I like your gaming metaphor because that's how I also feel the entire startup world works with like, you know, venture capitalists on one side, you know, these innovators on the other side. I think it's like a huge game. And I think if someone takes it too seriously, then you end up losing it. So what what do you think about like how gamified is the startup world? Because, you know, uh, the chances of success of a startup actually becoming a big company are very low. So how serious does one have to be uh, about a particular thing that they're starting? Yeah, I think you need to be obsessed. So so it's kind of like what I call <laughs> blissfully dissatisfied, right? In one mm. breath, I'm going to say you need to be obsessed at a level nine or 10. And 10 is a crack addict or an alcoholic waking up in the morning with no resources, no money, no know-how. And by 3 or 4 p.m. in the afternoon, they're high, right? Like that level of obsession, even though most of it, they might do things that are illegal to accomplish that. That's the level mm. of drive that's required to succeed in the startup tech game. That being mm. said, you also need to pair that with the idea that success or failure has nothing to do with who you are fundamentally as a person. And I think that there's a difference between you know, what I call the science of achievement, right? So in business, there is a science to business. It is a, a discipline. There's, you study it, there's books on it, there's principles, there's best practices, etc. So just like getting healthy, anybody could follow a protocol and do the work and get healthy. But a lot of people, you know, have a hard time in the business, but some people are really successful in business. And then there's the mm -hmm. art of fulfillment and the art of fulfillment is the, the blissfully part, right? So blissfully grateful for the moment you have. And, and, and in some ways I, I call it training your, um, and I got this from Tony Robbins of all people, but he said this once, it really mm -hmm. resonated with me, which was trade your expectation for appreciation, right? So even in failure, mm -hmm. if you're hard on yourself, it's because you had expectations around what you were hoping to accomplish. But if you can actually look back and appreciate what it was and what you learned, 
then that'll help you bring a certain energy to the next project. And if you use that as a loop, right, then you create a game that never has to not be played or stop being played or um, that, you know, hopefully the more successful you are, the the harder you're going to want to work. And I think that's another area. When I said I sold my company is like my biggest failure. I think that's what mm-hmm. I thought. I thought that was the dream is you build a company, you sell it and you, you live free for the rest of your mm-hmm. life off the money. Um, it turns out that humans have a need to contribute to feel fulfilled. And just because mm-hmm. you don't have to work doesn't mean you're going to be happy. It's like my kids, right? Somebody said, well, as long as they're happy, my kid would be happy eating Haagen-Dazs playing Fortnite. I don't want my kid to be happy. I want my kid to feel fulfilled. I want them to learn to do hard things. I want them to create their future. I'm not, the word happy, I, I have an issue with, but there's a lot mm-hmm. of different places we can go with this conversation, but that's at a high sure. level the way I think about it. It's because we had Rand Fishkin on this podcast the other day, and he too said the biggest mistake of his life was selling Moz or stepping down from being the uh, CEO of Moz. So I, I understand that, but there's also something I want to connect this to. It's something you said earlier in this answer where you said uh, you were making the the metaphor, the simile with a drug dealer, and you said things would have to be done illegally. And and when you look at all these movies like The Social Network, you know these founder movies about Steve Jobs and everyone. A lot of about a lot of things about building the company that they've built were done illegally, or it's like a hustle. So, what do you think? Uh, is it so hard for a startup to just honestly make it to the very top in a world like ours, which is dominated by monopolies? Is it necessary that they have to hustle? Is that the only way that a startup can actually get there? We have to define hustle, but let's just mm-hmm. let's not use the word hustle because I'm not sure if we'd be talking about the same thing. But let's just think about like following the letter of the law. Okay. Mm-hmm. I believe that if every company followed the letter of the law, there would be no businesses that look like successful. Here's what I mean by that. Most companies are starting off with employment laws being broken right out of the gate. Okay. So like we could just start mm-hmm. with that. Um, you know, Uber was breaking employment laws. Um, you know, a lot of innovation requires you to challenge the status quo. You know, is it illegal if Zappos takes an order for a pair of shoes on their on the internet and then runs down the street buys the shoes and ship them to the customer is that mm. is that okay you know and i think that's that's 100% you know and then, and then we can have this whole philosoph- philosophical debate around <laughs> what is good and bad because it's subjective to the individual right so that's fascinating in itself so i would say I, I think it, you have to ha- like you need to have ethics, right? You need to you you need to look at the greater reason why you're doing stuff. And I'm all for competition, but I'm not for breaking the law per se. I think there's this gray zone, right? So, for example, the other day I was parked illegally doing a Facebook Live because the park that I was parked <laughs> in was closed, but I parked there anyways. Okay, so technically I was breaking the bylaws of the city. But the reason I pulled over is because I had something on my heart that I wanted to share that I thought could serve some people. Yeah. So should I have not stopped? (laughs) I don't know. Well, I know what I did. I decided to give. And I was okay willing to pay a fine if that... That's mm. what was required. So I, I don't know. I just think that the it's a it's a bigger question. I think the tenacity and creativity and resourcefulness needs to be there. 
And I know too many entrepreneurs that are playing um, delicately in a, in a full contact sport and it just doesn't work. You can't, you can't expect to compete against other people if you're not going to really dig in and be creative. I'm not saying break the law. I'm saying understand when you can bend the rules. Hmm. It's, it's funny because uh, you mentioned the example of Uber earlier. And in the case of Uber, now Uber has to treat their workers in London, for instance, in the UK. Uh, they have to give them minimal the minimal wage. Like that's a law that London has passed. So I think maybe it's more a struggle between, uh, you know, how much younger companies can bend the law versus how much the system can keep the laws in place until the laws become outdated. Do you think that's a kind of well, a tussle as well? I mean, that's why it's not black and white. It's just like Airbnb. Hmm. You know, a lot of the Airbnb yeah. hosts are breaking the law by allowing people to rent in their neighborhood where they might have bylaws or stratas or HOAs that don't allow it. But it created a competitive solution that that the hotels didn't like because the hotels hmm. were used to making their incredible margins and they didn't want to distribute the wealth down to a broader population of people. Right. And I think it's it's one of those things where as the world evolves, as our understanding of, of, of the economy evolves, that we need these disruptive companies to come in. And sometimes they're being aggressive or they're being um, they're in this gray zone of like, well, it's not written like that, but you could take it that way. But we're going to push it. Mm-hmm. And they have to be able to do that so that it creates this conversation around what is. So like in London, like you said, they chose to go that route. Mm-hmm. Maybe in the U S they go a different route and that's okay. But for a, an individual to not innovate because they can't afford to pay the employment tax to create the prototype, to get some traction, to raise investors. I think that's, that's risky, right? You know, should you mm-hmm. go and hack into somebody's servers to download their customer files, to do a cold outbound email campaign? Oh, for sure. Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's illegal. Yeah. That's, that's clearly, yeah. So there is, there are certain things that well, are black or white, illegal, but, but what about, uh, what about yeah. when Uber decides to buy burner phones, install, uh, you know, their competitors app and then overwhelm their network to try to create a bad quality of service. <laughs> well, isn't there like a famous thing? I, I don't remember who, I think it's Chomsky who comes up with a quote that when the emperor does something illegal, it is legal, but if a pirate does it, it's illegal. So there it depends on how go. much money you have and value. <laughs> yeah. I think it's in a book called Emperors and Pirates. But yeah, okay. Uh, okay, so the next question is, uh, with so many SaaS players in the market, do you think the industry is getting saturated? Or do you think it's always been saturated, but we're just looking at it as saturated now in the moment? Um, I think there's certain categories that are very saturated. Obviously, MarTech marketing technology. Um, Mm -hmm. But the reality of it is, is there's so many workflows to this day in various different industries that are continued to be done manually or through a spreadsheet, right? So the way I think about it is SaaS is always going to be the picks and forks of things that create the workflow or the data analysis or the notifications or the report, whatever it is around the thing, right? And point solutions will always be built to address a market. So you know, when we have these industries that are popping up that are going to be, you know, game changers, game changers in nature, like uh, artificial intelligence and self-driving cars and drone technologies and 3D printers and Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, uh, all of these, you know, massive multi-billion dollar new industries 
are going to require a set of tooling. And that's going to come from software. So SaaS is really just the subscription component. But at the end of the day, it's software. I don't think, you know, and Mark Andreessen said the software is eating the world. I don't think its appetite is letting up. And you know, <laughs> we've been 40% annual growth rates. I don't think that's going to slow down for a while. But I do think certain industries that are, um, you know, real estate technology, funny enough, if, if you don't know, like real estate prop tech is incredibly competitive and saturated. It's also, I don't know, probably like a 50 billion a year market that, you know, some really great 25, 50 million a year SaaS companies can be built off of. And then there's all these other still very specific niches like, man, I have one of my clients, um, they have uh, Yeti. Now, I don't know how they get away with that trademark, but they do um, management for snow removal companies, right? So they're a platform. For snow mm -hmm. Like there's all these very, you know, dance studios. And one of my other clients, I coach Nama, Nama Stream, they do it for yoga studios. So there's like all these like uh, point solutions for these different industries, uh, forestry, you know what I mean? Or... Um, uh, geez, resale loop in, in the consignment, uh, kind of the, the mm. old school closed consignment space for retail. I mean, there's just so much opportunity still um, to, to do that. Yeah, I don't think it's saturated mm. except for certain industries. And you don't think that a monopoly, which it's not yet, but you don't think there's going to be a HubSpot-like software monopoly that can serve all these different industries and you don't need competition. Like, you know, a, a software that actually can, you know, do something for the yoga industry and the uh, forestry industry and both of these people can use it and instead of there being like, you know, particular services. Yeah, no, I think what, if I see like the trend, right, there's, there's kind of like mm. these infrastructure pieces like a NetSuite or, or um, you know, Zero or Salesforce or let's call it HubSpot. But the truth is, you know, different solutions are going to serve different layers of the market, right? So you have your SMB and mid-market and enterprise, but that's simplistically explained. Within those, there's just so many different tranches, right? Of, you know, franchises and like, uh, you know, um, private equity backed versus sole proprietary. Like in, in, in each one of those categories of an industry, they might have a different propensity of features and, and price points that they're willing to pay that somebody could have that slice of that market, right? So like HubSpot can exist, Salesforce can exist. Now, back in the day, it used to be Oracle, it used to be BEA, it used to be Microsoft, right? And I think what's mm -hmm. happening is these upstarts because of the infrastructure, the Amazon, the Stripes, the, you know, the, the programming DevOps infrastructure, it's allowing just the, it's almost like the long tail to be even longer for these companies mm. to build traction to start pulling away market share from some of the incumbents. I don't think that's going to stop. Um, and I don't think now what's interesting is, you know, when you look at AI, AI requires a large data set for it to be trained properly to do something interesting. And the reality of that, unless somebody comes out with an AI data marketplace, which there are that are coming uh, online, uh, is those are typically reserved for a handful of big companies, the Facebook, Amazon, you know, Apple, um, Tesla, right? So I think that would be concerning, but because I see the marketplace, the data, the data store marketplaces popping up, I think that'll be a solved problem. Um, you know, even 
AI as a service and, and, and a knowledge area is becoming democratized and more approachable. So yeah, I'm not seeing any consolidation challenges. Uh, what Apple's doing to Google right now is really cool and Facebook. I think that's important. Um, oh yeah. There's a lot of concentration, I think, on, on phones. Competition is just really important. Like I, I just, I really don't think the laws, like the fact that Google still has so much market share for their search engine is pretty fascinating. Hmm. Interesting. And, and do you think with AI, just to echo popular media, but also TechCrunch and Wired, they all speak about how China is at the leading edge of AI. Uh, and you also did mention TikTok is an upcoming marketing trend, which is also a Chinese company. Do you think we are seeing a shift of the entire, I don't know, the competitive sphere to the East? I think that's been happening for 20 years mm. now. Okay. <laughs> Where are we now then? Uh, yeah, that's the thing is, can, you know, let's call it, you know, North American companies leverage that talent. That's interesting, right? And I think some companies like Zoom um, seem to be able to, to do that. Um, but it's a concern as well. You know, my concern is the way trade works, right? We're technically North America, I'm Canadian, spent a lot of time in the US. Um, we're open to trade. We're open to export. We're open to having people come in and, and, you know, the investor visas, et cetera. But it seems when we go the other way, that's not the case, right? And we have to partner mm -hmm. with the local. We need to do all this government stuff, et cetera. And it's, it's just nearly impossible. So I think that needs to be addressed to, to alleviate my concern, which is true that, that, the, that Chinese type countries um, are amassing such a knowledge bank of talent that's technically mm. funded and supported by North American companies or first world countries. Mm. Yeah, so that's a big concern. So, so what do you think is going to be, say, 10 years from now? Like, what is going to happen? Like, is uh, the US going to get more competitive in that sense? Or are we I'll, looking I'll at Europe getting more competitive? I don't know. Yeah. I honestly, I'm not political in nature, <laughs> but I tell you like what would be fascinating. W one thing mm. that I, you know, cause I got into cryptocurrency in 2012, um, bought an ATM <laughs> machine in 2013. I've been doing it for a long time and I, I honestly don't talk a lot about it on social media, um, but mm. it is a part of my portfolio. And what I was fascinated about when I went down that rabbit hole is the concept of people uh, right now, our alignment of values is geographically um, based, right? Like where you physically live mm. kind of sets the tone for the values that you care about and for the, the ecosystem that you operate within, right? The rules, the government, the, the social aspects, the politics, all that. So like it's geographically, there's borders. And with, with cryptocurrency and the idea of different coins, is you can start to create a world potentially where the currency and the values of the currency is designed into it starts to almost act like a social network in the sense that if it's aligned with your values, you're going to use that currency, right? Hmm. And I think that's fascinating. That's like, where's the world going to go? I don't know, per se. I've got some thoughts, hmm. but man, wouldn't it be cool if it wasn't about being Canadian or American or Chinese or whatever, 
And instead, mm. you adopted the currency that most aligned with the way you want to show up in the world. And then that currency's ability to pull people into adopting those beliefs sets the value of that currency. So all of a sudden, we have this like global democracy based on the trade and them deciding to participate in that currency's trading, if that makes sense. Mm. I think that's a neat idea. For sure. I think Naval was saying it on, I think, Joe Rogan's podcast as well, that uh, cryptocurrency is the inheritor of the Western tradition, because like whatever happens in the West, it is this that will actually survive on and actually create a more equitable world, uh, because no one actually controls it in a sense. And have you heard of BitClout? Yeah, I'm on BitClout. I, I guess yeah. <laughs> you are on BitClout. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean... It's all early days. Like, dude, I've been like, Naval and I are friends. I mean, he was one of my early mentors when it came to angel investing. So all my investment, like I lost money. All my money I lost was the pre-Naval meeting in 2009. <laughs> and then Naval's like, here's the way you should think about angel investing. Um, hmm. But the way I've seen it, because I've been doing this for so long, like 20 some years, is I like to be early, but I don't waste my time with early. Okay, so I, I thought I wasn't too early in 2012, 2013 in the crypto space, <laughs> and I was, right? And for sure. And that's cool, but I made my bets and they're and they're doing well now, obviously. Um, mm. you know, and 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 I've I've been waiting for the killer app. I've been waiting for the spreadsheet, the personal computer to show up for, and I'm starting to see that with NFTs, with obviously big mm. type concepts, um, smart contracts that are being used in real world activities. I think it's I think it's interesting, but I I that's the reality that is that is probably going to be more of a um, influencer of where the world's going than a lot of other things. And and if I were to try if I wanted to understand where the world's going, I definitely would would spend more time in that, you know, more than mm-hmm. politics. Because I think, man, if you if you can decentralize a lot of the buying power and and influence. Mm-hmm then it gets interesting. Right now, it's concentrated. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm going to go on to the last question because we're running out of time and it's a very uh, (laughs) typical question, but it is. Is there something you wish you would have done differently in your life? Or actually, let me rephrase that. Uh, Is there anything else you would be doing today if not this? Like, if not this, what else would you be doing today? Like, I'd be, I'd be building companies. If I wasn't building software companies, I would probably be like an architect. Like I just like to create, Mm. you know? Okay. Yeah. I'm I'm a, I'm a, I like to build stuff and, and, and to derive value by contributing in some way. Yeah. My North star metric is people. So like every day I wake Uh up and I kind of think about like build the empire, build the army, build the empire, build the army. Like, the more value I can create, the more people I can bring into my world, the more people I can push, coach, cajole, grow, mm. influence, then it's kind of this referential kind of, you know, um, snowball, this flywheel. And so to my true north is the amount of people I worked with. Those are my, that's my immediate focus. These people, they take priority because I know that the amount value that the world will receive by me working through those people to develop them is going to be disproportionate than anything else I can do on social media. But then those people help me create a bigger audience on the social media side. That's why I do podcasts and and interviews. Um, 
but the truth is, is like, you know, as, as Chamath says, like, go get the money. Mm. Money will give you, (laughs) will give you the ability to change things. And I think a lot of people don't realize that they think money's evil and it's not, it's like saying a fork is evil. Like a fork is a fork. It's a tool. You can use it to to stab somebody, but it's just, it's a tool. I was going to say Chamath is also on BitCloud. So well, <laughs> I was going to say. Investors, and... So, I mean. <laughs> oh, okay. So where do you get your, okay, one last bonus question. Where do you get your daily dose of news from? Like are there I particular newsletters you follow? I don't consume news. I think news will rot your brain. I think it's like sugar. <laughs> okay. Um, I okay. consume uh, books, a lot of books, a lot of reading, hmm. uh, YouTube interviews. I study billionaires and mm-hmm. talking to individuals that are way smarter than me okay all right that's actually a good to-do list for everyone who's listening all right well that's the end of the interview thanks everyone for joining us for this month's episode of outgrows market of the month that was dan martel who is the founder at SAS academy thanks for joining us dan appreciate it you guys have an amazing day thanks so much all right see you all right Great.